This episode of We the People is brought to you by Vagrate Courses Plus, a new video learning service featuring more than 5,000 lectures taught by award-winning professors and experts. To begin your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com backslash people. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com backslash people. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. In these polarized times, we are the only place that brings together people of different perspectives to learn about, debate, and celebrate the greatest document of human freedom in history, the U.S. Constitution. And today we discuss one of the most important cases of the current Supreme Court term, Evanwell versus Abbott, which will be heard by the court on December 8th. Joining me to discuss the meaning of one person, one vote, and to tell us how the court will rule, are two of the nation's leading experts in constitutional law and returning champion guests on We the People. Rick Hassan is the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine School of Law. He is a national expert in election and campaign finance law and is the author of the authoritative election law blog. Ilya Shapiro is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute in Washington and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He's also a member of the National Constitution Center's Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board. Rick, Ilya, thank you so much for being here. Good to be back. Glad to be here. Uh, Rick, let's jump right in. Can you tell us about the background of the case? Who are the appellants? Why are they upset with Texas's method of redistricting? And what is the central constitutional question? Sure. Well, just uh, to give a little background for those who may not be familiar with the redistricting process, uh, every 10 years, uh, Texas and every other state uh, has to go through the process of redrawing legislative districts. These are the districts that are used both for electing members of Congress as well as for electing uh, members of the state legislature. Uh, in this particular case, uh, these are districts that were drawn uh, on the state side rather than on the congressional side. And uh, the reason that these lines have to be redrawn every 10 years is that we have a census every 10 years, and the Supreme Court decided in a series of cases in the 1960s, including a case called Reynolds versus Sims, that uh, there has to be uh, some equality in districts. And the question is equality of what? That's the issue in the Evanwell case. But districts have to be redrawn so that they have either uh, equal populations or perhaps equal voters. That's the issue in Evanwell. And uh, a failure to do so on the state legislative side would be a violation of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. In the specific Evanwell case, uh, Texas, as I think all other states do, uh, relied upon the total population figures, which come from the United States Census, in deciding how to draw districts. And under the Supreme Court's precedence, drawing districts with roughly equal population would seem to be what is required. The plaintiffs in Evanwell, who are voters in these districts, argue that it is not proper to use total population as the basis for drawing these districts, but instead you must use total voters. Now, we're, I'm not clear exactly what they mean by voters, whether they're talking about eligible voters, registered voters, or something else, but that you have to draw lines so that there's about the same number of voters in each district. Otherwise, you would be impermissibly diluting the power of those voters. And this 
itself, according to the plaintiff, would be a violation of the 14th Amendment. Great. Thank you so much for that great introduction. Ilya, Rick said that most states use total populations rather than total voters. What is the constitutional basis that these appellants are raising to say that it should be total voters? And what's the, what are the arguments on behalf of their claim? Well, uh, all the states do use total population in, in, in a general sense, although about 10 uh, exclude from that uh, apportionment base uh, aliens or non-permanent res- residents or non-resident military personnel, especially a state like Hawaii has a very large military presence that could skew districts, or inmates for that matter, whether they can, uh, whether they have voting rights or not, uh, they don't, you don't want to have disparities based on where the largest uh, prison in the state is, for example. So it's not uh, simply just uh, 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 equalizing uh, uh, voters. But basically the same principle is at issue here uh, in this challenge as uh, was brought to bear more than 50 years ago in the early 60s when these original one-person, one-vote standards were established. It, and the, the, the debate is even uh, longer than that, going back to the so-called rotten borough problem in the United Kingdom, where you literally had members of parliament representing hills and fields and not a single constituent. They were equal in area, perhaps, or uh, representing counties, um, but uh, the population was skewed, uh, and that gave much more power to, say, rural districts over urban ones, and the Supreme Court eventually said, no, you have to equalize the, the populations at least within about a 10% um, um, margin. Uh, and the courts over the years, there have been three federal circuit court opinions. Uh, there's kind of a three-way split. They, they each decided the question a different way, each time ruling for the state, uh, but for different reasons. The Fourth Circuit decided that this was a political question, that a court couldn't even decide this, and so the state uh, system could stay in place. The Fifth Circuit just deferred to the state. They didn't say that you have to use total population, but if you want to keep it that way, uh, you can. Uh, and that Fifth Circuit opinion, that's in the, in the Chen case from about 15 years ago, uh, there was a, uh, a Justice Thomas wrote a, uh, an, a dissenting opinion from the denial of that cert petition, saying that the Supreme Court has never explained further in this context what one person, one vote means, and so should take the case. And then finally, the Ninth Circuit uh, uh, is the only court that said that you have to use total population. That's the only constitutionally acceptable manner. And what the plaintiffs are saying here, uh, that in Texas there are significant disparities uh, between the districts that have the highest percentage of eligible voters and the lowest percentage because of foreign populations or non-voting eligible populations. Now, this doesn't have anything to do with legal or illegal immigrants. This is completely separate from uh, the the court's ruling earlier this week on President Obama's DAPA program or anything like that. This is purely election law, not not immigration. But nevertheless, there are some districts where, for example, there are 1.6 or 1.7, depending on how you count it, uh, times the number of voters uh, or eligible voters uh, than in other districts. And if it's problematic to have 1.6 or 1.7 times uh, the number of people, the population disparity, isn't it just the same a constitutional problem to have that sort of disparity in terms of eligible voters because each vote in the districts with fewer voters is then worth more than in those other districts? Great. Thank you for that great summary. So as we put the argument on the table so far, we have Justice Thomas saying in 2001 that the court has never 
determine the relevant population that states have to equally distribute. We've heard that most states use total population, but you've told us about this Burns case from Hawaii in 1966 where Hawaii did use eligible voters, and the court said that was okay as long as the maximum deviation would have met the one person, one vote standard. And here in Texas, the appellants are saying that there is a 50% maximum deviation among uh, eligible voters. So, Rick, how should listeners and how should the justices evaluate this this constitutional claim? Tell us about, uh, to begin with, the original understanding of Article One, Section 2 of the Constitution. In its brief, uh, the United States says that Article One, Section 2 is based on persons rather than eligible voters and says it cannot be the case that Section 1 of the 14th Amendment sometimes forbids the states from using the population metric for legislative districts. That Section 2 of the 14th Amendment requires states to use when districting for federal elections. Uh, what do you make of that claim? Yeah, well, this is, uh, I'm sure, very confusing for people who are not steeped in the details. So let me just back up again for a second and talk about, I, I talked about how redistricting happens within each state. But let's talk about how Congress is formed uh, every 10 years, uh, that is how each um, state gets allocated its seats uh, in Congress uh, for uh, the next 10 years. And what happens is that after the census, there's an allocation of seats, what we call an apportionment of seats to each state. And there, according to uh, now what's in the 14th Amendment, uh, that uh, standard is a total population standard. So everyone agrees, and it's not under challenge in this case, that when you decide how many representatives in Congress California gets compared to Rhode Island, compared to New Jersey, it's based upon total population. And so one of the arguments uh, that's made by the United States uh, government and others is that it would be quite anomalous to say that you must use total population for purposes of deciding how many representatives each state gets in Congress, but you are forbidden from looking at that uh, when you are deciding how many representatives, either for Congress or for state legislatures, within each state. Now, there's a subtle difference between the position taken by Texas, the state of Texas being the appellees, the ones who are responding in this case, the, the party that won below, and the position of the United States. The position of Texas is that this is a question of discretion for the states. That is, that the states should be able to use total population or use eligible or registered voters or some voter measure. The United States says, don't reach that issue, Supreme Court. That's not really what's before you. What's before you is only the question whether um, eligible voters or, or some voter measure is required. Uh, but if you do reach the question, based upon what we do for uh, uh, the allocation of seats to all of Cong for, for the country, for all of Congress, and based upon the idea that we want representatives to represent all the people and not just the voters, total population is a better standard. And so the, uh, the United States is going to get a chance to argue in this case, and it does have a subtly different position from that of Texas. Uh, thanks for that. That's very helpful. Ilya, is it the appellant's position that total that, that, uh, vote, voter population is required when there are large disparities? Distinguish it from the position of the U.S. and Texas and respond to what uh, Rick said about Article One, Section 2. Right, yes. The founders the plaintiffs are saying that uh, just like one person, one vote uh, 50 years ago meant you have to equalize population, now you have to equalize uh, eligible voters. And there's different measures. Um, they propose the citizens of voting age, 
Uh, there are other possible ways of counting this. There's kind of a battle of the demographers about whether you can measure it and how you can measure it that I don't know if you want to get into, but that's kind of uh, cabining that for, for right now. Um, the, it, it, it doesn't relate to apportionment. Um, they're, they're not saying that the way that uh, the decennial census apportions number of congressmen uh, also should be dependent on uh, eligible voters in contravention to uh, Article One, Section 2. The, the reasons for, this is kind of the, the modern federal analogy, if you will. It's kind of funny. Each time uh, one person, one vote has come up, whether 50 years ago or now, there's a, there's a federal analogy to be had. Indeed, Reynolds versus Sims, that foundational case from 1964, involved a, uh, a system in Alabama that kind of was federal, uh, uh, paralleling the federal Senate. That is, in Alabama, each county had a senator or two senators, just like in the United States. Each state has uh, two senators. Uh, and that uh, the Supreme Court struck that down uh, because the relationship of a county to a state is not the same as the relationship of a state to the federal government. These are separate sovereigns, and the way that federalism uh, operates, uh, the federal rule was created to protect that federalism, not voter equality. And moreover, the apportionment rule was intimately tied to state taxation, the way that direct taxes were much more prevalent uh, around the time in the, in the early ages of the, uh, of the republic. And so states, uh, to incentivize states not to under-report their populations for tax purposes, to taxation was, or apportionment was tied to the population as well. And then there's even more history tied with the three-fifths compromise, uh, that is, how would slaves be counted for all of this? That was then subsequently amended with the 14th Amendment, that is, to the extent that states disenfranchise their freed slaves, uh, their uh, apportionment in Congress would be uh, uh, decreased as well. So a whole host of issues that really have nothing to do with intrastate uh, districting, how you draw it, whether it be on county lines or taking into account whatever modern uh, election law requires. And so this is actually quite a bit of what my brief, what Cato's brief, uh, uh, deals with, explaining the federal analogy, uh, why it's uh, uh, in here. Um, and so uh, I think there's a way of equalizing both total population uh, and eligible voters. Um, there are some cons additional constraints that the Voting Rights Act uh, puts in in terms of protecting the rights of uh, racial minorities as well. It's, it's complicated, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, I think it's a, a value worth uh, keeping to maintain the idea of voter equality and, and so that you don't have, um, you know, if, if, uh, if, if the United States government's position wins, uh, then you, there would be no constitutional problem with having a situation where uh, there's uh, a district that has 1% of the voters of other districts, and each voter there would presumably have uh, 100 times the power per vote. And, and that's not a constitutional problem. I think this is much more of a line-drawing practical problem, but the, the constitutional value of voter equality must be maintained. Great. Rick, what do you make of uh, Ilya's claim in his brief that it's a false analogy to compare the federal and state processes? History shows the rule in Article uh, 1, Section 2 uh, was for dealing with separate states that had their own legal autonomy and therefore has no relation to interstate districting. And then more broadly, what do you make of Ilya's claim that voter equality is a serious value and the gross disparities uh, between voter uh, population violate the Equal Protection Clause? 
Well, let me start at, the, at, at, that, at that last point. You know, all that the Equal Protection Clause says about uh, the question of uh, equal voting populations uh, is uh, that uh, no, no state uh, sh shall deny its persons equal protection under the laws. There's nothing specific in there. So this is a judge-made rule. It was a rule that was made by the Supreme Court in the 1960s. And it's kind of ironic to see conservatives arguing that uh, the Constitution should be read, the Equal Protection Clause should be read, to take away even more discretion from the states. Uh, right now, the states, uh, at least as we understood it, had discretion to choose between a measure of total population or something else, that was uh, such, as, uh, such as registered voters. Um, that was the holding in 1966 in the Burns versus Richardson case, where the Supreme Court said that Hawaii could use this alternative measure, even though most people were using total population. Uh, the idea that you're going to find there's no textual basis or historical basis to say that there must be, under the original understanding of the Equal Protection Clause, equality of voters within districts. So it's not an originalist argument. It's an argument that's based upon cases in the 1960s, cases which conservatives usually ha have some objections to. I think, I think it would be more principled to say that there should be no constraints from a conservative position. There should be no constraints on how districts are drawn than to say that we should take away uh, the issue from uh, the uh, states to give them some discretion, especially when you have precedent going back to 1966, which seems to say this is okay. But I think ultimately the biggest impediment that the uh, appellants are going to face in this case is not about history or about theory, but about practicality. And the, and the practical reason that just about all the states use total population, and I should say that some of the things that uh, Ilya said about what states say they do, it turns out they actually probably don't do that. Uh, there's some good evidence that total population is being used. The reason for that is that total population, we have very good data on that, and that comes from the census. The data that we have uh, to figure out voters is, is much sketchier. And if we're talking about eligible voters as opposed to registered voters, we have a problem that how do you determine people who have not uh, registered to vote, whether they're actually eligible, whether they're citizens, whether they're uh, residents of the state? That's very hard to come up with accurate numbers. So if state is ordered to do this, there wouldn't be the data to actually do it. And maybe the Supreme Court would have to order that data to be collected. And if we use registered voters, well, one of the things we know is that registered voter lists are, are, are very inaccurate because we have decentralized election administration and we have bloated voter rolls because when people move or die, their names are often not taken off the list, that would not be a good basis to do things either. And so I think at the end of the day, there's a brief by Professor Nate Persley who's, uh, who said uh, this is not something that could easily be done. And, and then the final point, this idea that you could actually draw a district that would equalize roughly both total population and total voters is uh, – perhaps true in theory, but in fact, the rumor has it, according to Professor Persley, uh, I interviewed him for the Election Law blog podcast, he said, the rumor has it that the reason that the plaintiffs have never shared a map of Texas that would show that is that it would so dilute the power of Latino voters that it would just be something that would be completely unacceptable politically and something the justices would never accept. Fascinating. Okay, Ilya, a bunch of points here, and there are three in particular. 
first, uh, it's bad originalism, and conservatives uh, sh shouldn't embrace it. Uh, second, it's impractical because we don't know what the total voter population is. And third, it would dilute uh, minority votes and also be aesthetically difficult because you can't draw a district that would equalize the power of voters and the total population. You have made a powerful aesthetic point in a recent tweet where you tweeted out a waffle that looked like the state of Texas. Tell us about the constitutional significance of that waffle and then address those other questions. Right. The, uh, the first time I debated Evan Well this fall was at the University of Texas. Uh, and I was thinking about how to uh, frame the discussion for the students. And that morning, I was staying at a, uh, at a hotel in town, and they, they offered a free breakfast, and they had waffles uh, in the shape of Texas. I <laughs> uh, know this is apparently a, a common thing in, in Texas. I had never encountered it. But I, I got this waffle, and I took a picture, and I tweeted it out. Uh, and uh, uh, I think Justice Don Willett of, of the Texas uh, Supreme Court uh, tweeted out or retweeted it and said there might be some Voting Rights Act problems with that districting, uh, which is a good point. The reason why we have a simple, you know, waffle, right-angle grid uh, district, uh, for one thing, there are different populations. So right off the bat, you know, a place like Big Bend or the Texas Panhandle where there's, you know, fewer people living than in Dallas or Houston or other urban centers. Uh, and also there are Voting Rights Act overlays in terms of, diluting the voting power of uh, racial minorities, uh, at least as has come to be interpreted uh, by the Supreme Court. So, you know, the reason why we don't have very simple districts and why every 10 years there's a, well, every 10 years we're still, we're, we're now at the end of year five after the census and we're still uh, litigating this thing. I mean, this is now a, a lawyer full employment act. Every census generates uh, in election law. Um, but it's, it's, it's complicated in that way. Now, um, as far as the, the bad originalism argument uh, is, is concerned, um, you know, I don't uh, claim to be, I don't claim to speak for conservatives. I don't claim to be a conservative myself. I'm a, a, a classical liberal. Uh, and uh, the 14th Amendment uh, fundamentally reshaped uh, the Constitution and the relationship of the states to the federal government, of citizens to the federal government. So if a state is doing something uh, that is violating the individual rights of, a, uh, of someone or um, uh, mistreating them in some way, then you can come to federal court uh, for that remedy. And here the allegation is that it's treating different voters differently based on where they live. Uh, I agree with, I don't think you'll find many conservatives disagreeing with the principle of one person, one vote. Uh, and so the question then goes to, um, uh, again, our original question that we're debating here, Do you, are you trying to equalize population or eligible voters or registered voters or, or what is the exact metric um, that uh, should states have to use show so as not to uh, violate the 14th uh, Amendment. Uh, and, you know, look, I'm not a demographer. I'm not an expert in, in the line draw or how to measure populations. Um, Rick mentioned the, the excellent brief by Professor Persilli. There's also an excellent competing brief that responds to it, or preempts it. At least I guess this one was filed before, and Persilli was in part responding to it. Uh, the demographer's brief, Peter Morrison, Thomas Bryan, et, et cetera. Uh, which talks about how uh, other types of populations are measured all the time, uh, including by the Census Bureau's American Community Survey that's updated uh, annually, apparently. There are annual updates, and so there's plenty of data available, at least good enough for government work. Uh, and, indeed, um, when uh, lawsuits are brought, including by the U.S. government, under the Voting Rights Act to protect the interests of racial minorities, specifically under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, 
um, uh, often the way that the, the measurements that are involved or the comparisons that are drawn between ideal districts or those that dilute or violate some principle uh, use citizens of voting age, and that's, that's the metric that the challengers are proposing here. And finally, as to the dilution of Latino uh, votes, um, it's, it's not clear that that would indeed be the case, and it's not clear that, first of all, Latinos are a monolithic voting bloc, or that the interests of eligible voters who happen to be Latino are exactly the same as Latinos who are not eligible to vote. Uh, the most recent immigrants who are citizens might feel much differently about issues, whether it be economic policy, foreign policy, or immigration, than people who are not citizens, for example. Uh, and you really, courts should not be in, 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 in taking into account voting rights claims. I don't think non-voters really have standing to uh, challenge or be considered uh, in the first place. So I guess I'll punt on the originalism issue, uh, except uh, than to say that uh, what we're really talking about here is the meaning of equal protection and equality under the law and the power of, of, of one's vote. Uh, if that makes me a, a bad uh, original, uh, well, if that makes me a bad conservative, so be it. I don't I never claim to that. I do think it's consistent with doing originalism at the right time. In this case, uh, 1868, the uh, the time of the ratification of the 14th Amendment. Uh, I think it's going to be practical, but again, I don't. You know, I don't know if it's, if Rick claims this expertise. I think he defers more to, to Nate Persilli, which is perfectly perfectly well because it's a complicated area. I certainly don't claim expertise on uh, how to measure these things, but the, the justices and their clerks will have to uh, deal with these uh, dueling uh, briefs from demographers and, and those experts. I think we'll see quite a bit of that, actually, in oral argument. That's a prediction that I'm uh, willing to go on and willing to make. Uh, thanks for all that. There may indeed be dueling briefs uh, as well as dueling waffles, and we will retweet out your great original tweet where you ask, not only do the Waffle Districts comply with the Voting Rights Act, but you say perhaps it needs some Jerry Mapling, which sounds uh, delicious. One man, one bite is the hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> and good, good, nice job. Um, Rick, How so setting the original, originalism issue aside, as Ilya did, because he said he's not an originalist, how is the court supposed to decide constitutionally among three different conceptions of equality? Should you equalize population or registered voters or eligible voters, or all three? What are the constitutional standards for making that decision? Well, because uh, the Equal Protection Clause is uh, a very uh, generally written uh, part of the Constitution, it's not very specific, and the rules are judge-made, uh, there's a lot of discretion. And so uh, what do you look to? Well, the first place I think you'd look is precedent, and the precedent we have here is the 1966 Burns case, where the Supreme Court uh, pretty much said that, that states within reasonable bounds can choose what its denominator is going to be for drawing districts, whether that's total population or some measure of voters. So, so there's precedent. That's one way to choose. Another way to choose is to look at the federalism concerns here. And again, um, giving states some leeway seems to give more um, protection for states. And uh, these are contested questions of political philosophy, whether when we think of a representative, is a representative really representing voters only? What about my children who can't vote? Are they not represented by my member of Congress? You know, so there, there, there are, these are competing concerns. And the question is whether the Supreme Court should be imposing a one-size-fits-all solution, reading the Equal Protection Clause to impose a straitjacket on the states, or whether uh, to give states some discretion and let those political issues be hashed out. And so if, in fact, 
people in Texas believe that total voter um, or, or total voters is better than total population, let them agitate for a state constitutional amendment and pass that and then uh, have that ability. And so the court is not constrained, but both precedent and uh, the fact that this is a contested issue seems to me to leave this mostly uh, in the hands of the states. Now, that's not the position the United States is going to take. It sounds like the United States is going to argue, if anything, it's total population. But I've, I've been long been on record as saying that uh, the Supreme Court should impose a kind of a backstop, imposing some general principles of equality, but on the, on the nuances, give the states some ability to have different political philosophies and to engage in some experimentation. Ilya, what about Rick's claim that this really is more about political philosophy than constitutional law, and picking a denominator is the job of legislators, not uh, judges? Um, well, I mean, we're debating not whether one person, one vote is a good idea, uh, because if you take that statement seriously, that states should be able to pick their denominators, then, uh, then Reynolds versus Sims and, and all those cases 50 years ago go out the window, because... Uh, states, even if you take away racial motivation, states can say, well, we want to make it very simple and straightforward, following purely natural boundaries and county lines and so forth, and uh, everyone stipulates that there's no racial animus or anything like that, but that still wouldn't work because of disproportionate uh, 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 populations. You would have more power for rural counties or areas or what have you. Um, so again, I mean, this is a very real and important fight that we're supposed to have over the denominator. Uh, I agree uh, that the court basically only sets a floor for uh, the types of rights uh, that are protected. States can uh, have leeway beyond that. It's not like a, a federal court is going to come in and, and draw their lines for them uh, unless it's in some sort of uh, uh, electoral receivership, uh, like under uh, in the Jim Crow era and, and, and so forth. Um, but uh, the, 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 the states here um, uh, need to preserve uh, voter equality, electoral equality, rather than representational equality. And so even places where there are more children, say, than other places, you could say in Utah, for example, there are large families. I don't think uh, districts should be drawn necessarily taking into account that skew. If, for example, some rural county in Utah has many more children who are not eligible to vote in, say, Salt Lake City uh, doesn't. You would have a similar situation to what's going on uh, in Texas in terms of non-citizens. So the court has generally uh, uh, employed tests of electoral equality, as Judge Kaczynski of the Ninth Circuit pointed out in his partial dissent uh, in, in that court's treatment of this issue. Uh, but that, uh, you know, this, this idea of what we're trying to equalize, whether it's representation or whether it's uh, uh, voter equality still takes us one step away from what uh, Texas is trying to rely on here, because how can non-adults uh, you know, or non-citizens, uh, what kind of representation are, are they due? Aliens, uh, those are very different from citizens who aren't eligible to vote, be they children, be they military members, be they people in jail, for example. They're, so we, you do get into some certain issues of political philosophy, but I think um, that's, the court doesn't necessarily have to get into that to resolve this case. And now a word from our sponsors. I'm a big fan of the great courses. I love learning about so many things. That's why I'm excited about the new The Great Courses Plus video learning service. It has unlimited access to thousands of fascinating subjects. 
The Great Courses Plus has nearly 5,000 video lectures in subjects like history, science, photography, and more, taught by award-winning professors and experts. With The Great Courses Plus, you can watch as many different lectures as you want, at any time, from anywhere. My listeners get a new introductory offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library, completely free for one month. I know you're going to love The Great Courses Plus. Sign up now for your free one-month trial. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com backslash people. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com backslash people. And now, back to the show. Rick, uh, tell us about the political ramifications of the decision. Uh, Some have claimed that a decision for Texas would help Democrats and a decision for the petitioners would help Republicans. Is that true? Why? And should that matter? Well, I think in this particular case uh, involving Texas, I I think everyone who's looked at this demographically agrees that uh, requiring that districts be drawn on a a voter-denominator basis is going to hurt both Democrats and Latinos, and, and most uh, Latinos in Texas vote Democratic. Uh, Ilya said it was kind of an open question. I don't think it's an open question at all. I think that it's pretty clear that the purpose of this lawsuit and the effect of this lawsuit would be to create more Republican Anglo districts in Texas. Now, uh, uh, would that be true uh, uh, everywhere that, uh, that it's going to help uh, that's not necessarily true. So, for example, there could be some rural areas in New York that have large prison populations, and if they're removed from the uh, denominator, then that could hurt rural areas. Um, but I think in those places that have large non-citizen populations, uh, which is mostly going to be Latino populations, and so we're mostly talking about places like Texas and California, it would shift power from uh, Democratic urban areas to uh, uh, Republican rural areas. I don't think there's any question about that. Now, if the rule is that total population is required, which seems to be the position the United States is taking as a fallback if the Supreme Court reaches that decision, I don't think that would change very much at all, since virtually all the states are using that, or maybe a slight variation on that, as their measure already. Do you disagree with Rick's conclusion that uh, a decision for Texas would help Democrats and uh, a decision the other way would help Republicans? And uh, what do you say to those who claim that this suit is has partisan motivations? Well, I don't know if it'll help or hurt uh, Democrats or Republicans overall. It probably will be neutral for Latino Democrats. It, it probably will hurt uh, white or Anglo, as they call it in Texas, uh, uh, Democrats. Um, uh, kind of similar to a lot of voting rights challenges, but then as, as one WEG put it, I forget where I first got this, but the, the Voting Rights Act of uh, 1965 was probably not uh, implemented to help white Democrats when you think about the politics of the time in the, in the Jim Crow South. Um, the net the net, net in, in each state might be different as for reasons that, uh, that uh, uh, Rick described. For that matter, this might end up benefiting the black community, especially if you use measures like citizens of voting age rather than registered voters or eligible voters because you, you, you take the, the issue of, of, of felon disenfranchisement off the table. 
um, uh, black communities have the highest rate of citizens, percentage of citizens of, I think, any uh, ethnic or racial community uh, in the country. And so uh, those districts, if anything, uh, won't be touched at all. And, and so you could, again, uh, see an enhancement there. So, again, uh, uh, to, to, to harm uh, white Democrats, again, so... Uh, there's, you know, and, and it depends, uh, the analysis depends uh, really on the state as well. Um, here you have a, a collection of odd bedfellows, right? You have uh, the Democratic National Committee at the Brennan Center, the NAACP, all siding with Texas, where they typically don't, especially in Voting Rights Act cases. So, um, you know, this is, I think, uh, to a large extent, kind of a, an intellectual and an ideological exercise, uh, not so much uh, a partisan one. Uh, Rick, help our listeners uh, analyze how the court may vote by focusing on constitutional methodology. Uh, let's start with Justice Kennedy, as we often do. In, in Bush v. Gore, he and his colleagues recognized a new right of electoral equality, of, of the right of each ballot to be counted precisely the same as every other ballot. Is it conceivable that he and others might, in fact, recognize a new right of uh, eligible voters to be counted uh, in precisely the same way? Well, uh, again, I want to back up to something uh, that I think could help answer that question. Uh, uh, Ilya mentioned that uh, there was a case uh, where, uh, where this issue came up before, where the Supreme Court denied cert, and Justice Thomas was the only one who uh, dissented, uh, issued a cert. Now, he was not joined by Justice Kennedy or any of the other justices at the time. And so it might make you wonder, why did the court take this case after they had the chance to take it before they considered it? Obviously, all the other justices read Justice Thomas's dissent and didn't sign on to it. So what's going on here? Well, this is a case, uh, this, and I should mention the case is brought by Ed Blum of the Project on Fair Representation. He's the same person who was behind the challenge to the Voting Rights Act, uh, the Shelby County case that struck down a key part of the Voting Rights Act. He's the same person behind the Fisher anti-affirmative action case that the Supreme Court is hearing this term. And what Ed Blum was able to do in this case was he was able to get this case heard by a three-judge court. And the reason that matters is certain cases by statute passed by Congress uh, are heard by a three-judge court with a direct appeal to the Supreme Court. So most cases come up on a completely discretionary review basis on a petition for cert. Supreme Court decides not to hear one of those cases. It doesn't mean anything. But the Supreme Court justices over and over again have said, and in fact, Chief Justice Roberts said it just last week in their argument in another case called Harris, that the Supreme Court feels compelled to take cases coming from three-judge courts on appeal because a decision even to just affirm it without a decision, uh, a written decision, is a decision on the merits. And so what I think happened here is the case came up on a, on a three-judge court basis, and the court felt compelled to take it. But I'm not convinced at all that there's going to be a solid majority that's going to be interested in revisiting this issue. In fact, I think only Justice Thomas and perhaps Justice Alito, uh, who, when he um, was coming up for confirmation, there was uh, some paperwork that came out when he applied to work at the Reagan Justice Department where he had criticized the Warren Court's one-person, one-vote cases. I expect only the two of them to have a real interest in revisiting this question. And I think we could well see a 7-2 to two or an 8-1 to one decision that says, let's leave this where it is from Burns and let's let the states continue to do what they were doing. I think that's probably the most likely outcome of this case. A crisp prediction from Rick. Ilya, do you agree? If not, why not? What, what vote uh, do you expect? Um, 
Well, I, I agree with his kind of background analysis about the importance of this having been a, a three-judge court. And earlier this week, uh, uh, there was a, an argument uh, about uh, that, that Rick alluded to. His name, the name of the case, escapes me at the moment. But uh, um, Rick was Harris. it was called Douglas Harris. Harris, right? Uh, no, Harris is a different one. Well, anyway, um, uh, about Harris. about when uh, when do the court uh, when, when does the Supreme Court have to take the? Uh, <laughs> it the sounds the, like a law firm. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to go out on a limb with, with any sort of prediction that this is going to be 5-4 or 8-1 you know, or 7-2 or, or, or what have you. I think it's going to be an interesting case because I don't think it's an easy issue. I don't think it's easy to say, no, there is no federal question here whatsoever. Indeed, the court could have said that there was no federal question. Uh, if, if there were that many strong votes to say that they're raising a, uh, a dispute that really doesn't sound in the 14th Amendment at all, uh, they didn't have to summarily affirm. They could have just said there is no federal question. We are not taking this appeal. And they didn't do that. Uh, and so I think the justices really want to explore because there's something to the idea that, uh, look, if, if there's a problem to have a 100-to-1 ratio in districts, uh, of number of, of voters or citizens of voting age, well, then you've accepted the principle, and then we're arguing about where the line needs to be drawn, whether the, it's the 10% deviation uh, that's been established for total population under Reynolds versus Sims, or whether it's something else or some other uh, reason that a, that a state has to show to, to use something other than citizens of voting age. So uh, I'm not sure that we can tell right away, and I think that as this case is litigated, um, you know, we'll learn more at oral argument where the justices are. But I don't think necessarily that this is going to come down to, well, you know, Thomas and maybe Alita will join them, and then everyone else is just listening to the case because they have to because of the weird three-judge three dynamic. Wonderful. All right, it's time, gentlemen, for closing arguments. I'm just going to ask you whether you agree with the issue that the court has set uh, to be litigated. Uh, Rick. Do you think that the district court correctly heard that uh, held that the one-person, one-vote principle allows states to use total population and does not require states to use voter population when apportioning state legislative districts, and why? Uh, well, I think that the result in the lower court was right. I don't know that I would have written the opinion in that in, in the way that the lower court did, but I would say that uh, so long as a state uses a reasonable means of achieving equality, whether that is voter equality or or total population equality, that that's within what's permissible by the 14th Amendment, and it, and it leaves states ample room for having a different view as to what is the appropriate scope of political representation uh, within a state legislature or a congressional district. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Rick, Ilya, do you believe that the three-district court judge uh, was correct constitutionally or not, and why? Well, I mean, I filed a brief supporting the challengers, so of course I, I disagree with the district court. Uh, uh, and as as we've discussed, I think the principle of voter equality is important, and you can't have these vast disparities uh, that uh, uh, empower some voters uh, over uh, others. And assuming that the, the battle of the demographers can be resolved in a way that it's practical to to, to use uh, uh, data other than just a decennial total census, and I think it is. Um, then you have to do so. Um, states don't have full discretion you know, if they violate uh, individual rights, individual voting rights. And by the way, I've now found this case about the three-judge district courts. It was argued last week, the first week of November, and I can't believe I forgot this name because it's called Shapiro versus McManus. Mm. So 
All of you can look it up. It's very technical about you know the procedures involved in a particular statute regarding the jurisdiction of three-judge versus one-judge election law courts. But anyhow, I'm, I'm going to be very curious about oral argument. I, I'll be there, uh, and perhaps we should do another one of these podcasts uh, soon after. We would love to do another podcast to revisit the Battle of the Demographers, the Battle of the Shapiros, and also the Battle of the Waffles. I'm looking at the tweet right now, and I feel like eating it. So um, thank you for sharing that. It is always a pleasure to have uh, both of you, uh, Rick Hassan and Ilya Shapiro. Thank you so much for joining We the People. Thank you. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Joshua Weinberg and Danielle Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash constitutionctr, and on our Twitter feed, at constitutionctr. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Email us at editor at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center, across from Independence Hall in Philadelphia. We the People is a member of the Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com backslash Panoply. And finally, here's the serious part. Despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.